first of all, we're going to make a pledge saying that we're not going to work for anyone ever again who will funnel money to organizations or to candidates that would undo our rights as BIPOCs, as LGBTQ+. We have to draw a line in the sand. Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, host of Live at the Lortel. For season two, while theaters are still closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are turning our focus to discuss the reckoning the theater community is facing for its history of systemic racism. We also wanted to give theater artists a platform to share their thoughts on the political and social changes in our country and how they envision the future of the American theater. I will be sharing my hosting duties with members of the BIPOC community to provide our audience with different perspectives and new ideas. It is our sincere hope these conversations will help us all learn from one another and begin the healing process. Daphne Rubin Vega and I met quite a few years ago through a dear mutual friend, Michael. We immediately found that we spoke the same language and have spent many hours talking about everything from the theater to relationships. When the idea came up to have a co-host for this podcast, Daphne was one of the first people I thought of. And while everyone knows Daphne as Mimi from Rent and her other award-winning roles, I just know her as a really dear friend. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Live at the Lortel. So excited this afternoon to welcome our guest, but I first need to make an intro to my co-host this afternoon, my very dear friend, Daphne Rubin Vega. Hi, Daph. Welcome. Hi, Hi, Eric. Hi, baby. Happy to be here. Hi, everybody. I'm so honored again that you're sitting next to me to interview your very dear friend and someone that I've admired for so long. So let's just get right to it without further ado. Daph, you go ahead, do the, do the intro to your, to your sister. Uh, Well, I just feel like we have this incredible, incredible connection, this strong bond that's bigger than us. I know that before I watched you so intently with so much love and fascination, support, and sometimes, you know, envy, I don't know the difference between jealousy and envy, but like just, you know, uh, which we could talk about later as a component of this business. I know that you watched me. So I know that like we we're bonded and today we can talk like immediately on levels that I think are just so um, healing. Without any further ado, my very, very dear sister, Karen Olivo. Hey, what's up? Karen, welcome. Thank you so <laughs> oh my much. my God, I would go on and on and on. <laughs> that, was a great, that was a great intro, Daph. Thank I'm you. I'm like, why are you trying to make me cry? It's just so, oh, it's so early in the you. podcast. It's early in the interview. Let's wait. <laughs> Let's get into it. Then you can cry. Welcome. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm, I'm so honored that you're here. And Daphne and I are friends and the top person that we agreed on that I begged her to please ask was you. And I'm so honored that you're here. I'm such a big fan of your artistry and your voice and what you do for our industry. Yeah. Let's just talk about it. I mean, how the hell have you been this past seven months? I mean, we, we can't talk and have a real conversation without talking about what the hell is going on in this country and where you've mm. been, how you are. I think I'm much like everyone else, uh, scrambling, trying to figure out what my next steps will be. Hopefully, we're all sort of doing that really deep dive and figuring out, you know, what our part is, what our part is in this like pandemic and what this part in, in, you know, this movement for 
racial justice is. And I spent like two months, I think at the very beginning of quarantine, paralyzed, not able to really process. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, I had a friend, a really great friend who was like, you know, if your body is saying be quiet, just be quiet and wait for the message because the message will tell you what your next step is. And it was like, I woke up one day and I was like, oh, I'm starting an organization. Oh, this is exactly what I'm doing. And then I've been working to, you know, really bring accountability, economic transparency to our industry. And when you look at the bones of it, it's pretty archaic, the way that we've been running things. It's really antiquated. And, and you know, I've never been one of those people that's understood that cross-section of art and commerce. And it's been something that makes me feel bad inside when I think of money being transferred for the thing that I create. Yeah. That has been my, like, quarantine period of trying to grapple with like, how do I try in my small way to write the ship? There's only so many things we can do. I mean, you can only go to so many, you know, protests and do, you know, donate and stuff like that. And so I know this one part of the industry and I understand the inequity. Maybe I can throw all of my energy into that. I don't know if that makes sense, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. Could I just, and how, yeah. How, how has that been for you? What kind of um, response or lack thereof or support or lack thereof have you experienced? Tell me about it. Well, you know, the organization is Affect, which is Artists for Economic Transparency. And it was started by me and my friend Eden Espinoza around the same time, we both sort of ran across a post that was the FEC page where it said that uh, James Niederlander had donated a sizable amount of money to 45's campaign. And it felt like someone had sucked the air out of my lungs. And I was like, oh, that is, I know what my contribution has been to Niederlander homes. You know, I've played many of them. And I, I was like, I should have known this. And there was more of like a finger pointing. My own finger was like, Karen, this is your job. So immediately it started from there. We decided, okay, first of all, we're going to make a pledge saying that we're not going to work for anyone ever again who will funnel money to organizations or to candidates that would undo our rights as BIPOCs, as LGBTQ+. We have to draw a line in the sand. We did that. And it was, (laughs) the silence was deafening. (laughs) Our handful of friends who were like, oh my God, yes, you're right. No one came out really at the forefront and was like, I'm going to do this with you, except for a choice few. But what I found was that, and I'm learning this from a lot of talks with people who are starting organizations, is that the road to change is a really personal thing. And so if people have not dug deep into why they know that transformation has to happen, their issues will cloud everything that they do. And, and that's what I found. I did a lot of cold calling early on, talking to directors and producers that I knew, trying to figure out like, if I did this organization, how could you help? Do you know anything about how to structure an organization? I've never done anything like this before. A non-for-profit, are you kidding me? And so the more I spoke that's to tough. people- Oh, well, you know, you know, you know how it is when someone, when like a higher being calls you to do something and you're like, I don't really have a choice. Like I have to figure out how to do this. It's a little like Joan of Arc. It sounds like Karen's experience. We all have that. You know, we have that in that, you know, it's 
if it's so different for everyone. So then I just spent all my time calling people. And I have, I found a lot of people saying, I'm so glad you're doing this. Let me know if I can donate or if I can help you. And then that's kind of where it would stay. And I realized, I mean, I did a lot of praying and I was like, what universe you told me to do this, help me build a team. And Eden and I did, you know, we both have a very strong faith. And so slowly but surely people started coming to us. You don't know me. I have my MBA in this. I understand what you're doing. Can I please be of service? And we slowly built this tiny little team of people. And it has been so emotional. You know, a lot of hurt too, I guess, if you think about it. I I expected some people in my industry to show up. You know, Daphne was one of the people who showed up immediately, but so many other people, I thought, this is like your fight. How are you not like trying to get in on this? But, you know, there's so much fear. And so I've been trying to be very compassionate and realizing that everyone arrives at that place at a different time. And so I'm just going to keep doing the work and hopefully people will see that it is useful and it's transformative and we'll gain an army slowly. (laughs) Karen, I'm interested where the, you know, for some of the community where the fear I mean, I know where the fear comes from, but I would love for you to kind of, I I know you can't speak for other people, but what that fear kind of lies in, what your point of view is about it. Well, I mean, I can speak for myself because I I had to overcome my own fear, really. Luckily, I've been someone who's always sort of operated from my gut and I've said no to many a job because I'm like, that team doesn't seem right. And the idea that I would never be hired again existed. And then I was like, yeah, but you'd be really unhappy. And then you'd make bad art. I've been able to always do that. Separate but can I just things. say that's, that's not fear. That's bravery, sis. That's bravery. Oh. Well, okay. I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take that reframe. Sure. Why not? <laughs> but I think that, yeah. I'll, you know, this industry does this weird thing to us where it makes us feel beholden to it. And the truth is like, we are the conduits, right? We are the things that allow that other thing to exist within us. And that is something that not everyone can do. And so I feel like people have lost that power. They forget that they're the only one who can do it that way. And so they start to feel like if someone says, yes, I must go and do whatever they want. Everyone's become like a gun for hire in that sense. And I find that a lot of people in this time thought, well, you know, they look at their bank account. They look at, you know, when the industry starts again, I don't want to be on a list of people that spoke out about it. I want to be able to work again. There's so many things in my career that I've yet to accomplish. And if I step out here in this moment and say the industry has gross inequity, I will have dashed all of my dreams and my hopes before I even get to a new form of theater. And so I understand it. It's bred in us. It's bred in us that only one of us can get there. (laughs) And that's just Mm -hmm. not the truth. It's just not the truth. Art is everywhere. People are willing to make art for nothing. And really the core of what it is, is creation, right? You create wherever you are and you can create for nothing, or you could create for $30,000 a week. It's still creation. You know what I mean? That's like the thing that we should be looking at. But yeah, I, I mean, I can't speak to anyone else's, but that for me was sort of like, oh yeah, I get it. I get why you don't want to, you don't want to put your name on this. It can be scary because you want to get hired again. Yeah. How magnificent that all of these people from all walks of life, people with MBAs and people are, are donating their time and their services for something of the greater. I mean, it's, are you feeling 
the change? Are you feeling, I know it's only been, what, seven months, but are you feeling a, a little bit of a, a turn? Am I making a difference? I don't, I feel like this is the kind of thing where I'm going to work for the rest of my life and I will never really know if it was worth anything. Do you know what I mean? I'm just going to keep going. And then hopefully whatever it is that I've done, if I've chipped away at something, someone else is behind me and I probably can't see them and they're <laughs> going to be able to knock down the wall. Um, but that's exactly it, I, how I felt. Love that. Yeah. Do you know? And like, is it really up to you anyway? <laughs> you know, it's not yeah. up to you. You just like, you know. It makes me think of like close encounters. It's like you had to answer this call and little by slowly, um, some people build followers on social media and some people build followers of thought, you know, and action and action in that thought. And yeah, like so well put. I mean, people are, you know, as Eric and I like to say, um, you know, afraid of losing what we have and not getting what we want. You know what I mean? And that kind of philosophy will paralyze us. Yeah. It's toxic. So big up. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to put all this information up on the website, Karen, so people can understand about what you formed and about what you're doing. So I find it incredible and I'm so excited for what's to come with it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's really like an uncovering, an awakening. It's not really like coming up with with, uh, news or new information. It's more like old information that is, like you said, like I'm popping my mic, like so archaic. And the revealing of it, like you did this work that is revealing of it. And, you know, it's... You know, it's like, um, oh, wow, I have this thing that I need to take care of. And like some people just put it on a shelf way for a while before they actually have to look at it. So um, thank you for reminding us that there's <laughs> stuff on that shelf. Thank you. Let's talk about your your work and your craft and, and your art. I'm toying with this to let you know that you've been nominated for a Tony Award. And it just came through on the phone and I'm sure your phone is blowing up. So I, <laughs> I put it on do not disturb because we're doing this. Right. So I don't know. But I, I, <laughs> oh my I, God. Did you get nominated? Yeah. Uh, so Karen is, is nominated for a Tony award. And I, I don't think ever in my life will I ever be able to tell somebody that congratulations. Congratulations. Um, wife. Magnificent, incredible work in Moulin Rouge. You want to talk about that show now that we're on it and sure. the work that you created, what you've done with it? Yeah. I mean, it's hysterical that uh, like I, <laughs> it's bittersweet. Like you saying that I'm nominated is bittersweet because it's so hard for me to ever separate myself from this collective of human beings that I've worked so hard with. Like I have, there are three people that I know that I've worked with in this show that are they're expecting children. I had just spoke with someone last night who was talking about worried that, you know, her unemployment was running out. And so there's no like, there's no way of taking this moment and having it be anything other than like, we're hurting as an industry. And when I think of like, what we accomplished with Satine, because it was we, it's not me, It's like a team, a huge team of people, including like AJ Littlefield, my dresser and Daniel Mortensen, the hair and 
you know, the hair supervisor who these people that are with me at every step of the show, this is theirs. And when I think of that, I get sad because they're unsupported in this time. I mean, I want to say, yes, I'm proud of the things that we created, but I'm also like, is this the time to celebrate? <laughs> or is this the time to be like, yes, this was created by all of these people. We need help. Who's That's going it. to help us so that we can keep making incredible art? It's not about me. Like the journey of Satine was like a trainer named Carrie Woodall here in Madison who kicked my butt for like eight months so that I could actually sing and dance in a corset. And like the hours of her thinking about like how much water I needed to have so that I could get through a certain nine minute section of Moulin Rouge. Like this is like, it, there's so many people who were like, I'm going to help you across the finish line. I'm proud for them. I'm proud for them because I know that they look at this nomination and they know inside what they did to help me do this thing. I'm proud for them, but I, I don't, I don't feel, I guess I don't feel the kind of thing that somebody would normally feel in this situation based on you know the things that I've seen is that I don't think, uh, yeah that makes perfect sense I, and I don't think you have to I mean okay, I, good. I don't want to let anyone I down Karen, <laughs> I, I think you're entitled to how you feel especially now with what you're going through and I I think Daphne can certainly talk more about well, the it's athlete, like a all that it's stuff. a trauma it's a happy, tr it's like everyone's looking at your inside, at your outsides rather. And it's like, you're, you're experiencing, you know, a very multi-layered, you know, even good news when it's like, bakata, like that, it hits you hard, but you're really experiencing many layers. And yeah, the reality is what you said. Thank you for putting it that way. I, I know exactly how you feel. Who was the team? I'm fascinated to learn about who was the team behind Satine. Oh, you know, I mean, as you said, I mean, it's it's a collaborative art, and you you work together, you know, as an ensemble to get there. Not only your co-stars, but I'm interested about who was behind you in this process, and I would love to hear about it. I think that to me is fascinating. Yeah. So I, I spoke about Carrie Woodall, who started the training of my body and also my mind. I mean, the amount of times that this incredible human being would tell me, you're an athlete, you're like a pro athlete. I want you to treat your body like that. She made me feel strong on the inside before my body was strong, which is like huge. And I mean, took me all the way to opening night. Was there opening night sitting in, in the audience to watch me sort of cross that finish line? Then there was also like my therapist, let's be honest, if you're going to do this kind of work and you're going to do it holistically oh, and you're going to take care of yourself, my therapist, we talked at length about how much of myself I would use in Satine and what things were safe and what things were not safe and sort of vetting memories and emotions and trying to figure out the longevity of what those things could be in the scope of like a three hour production or a little under three hour production. A lot of confidence came from those conversations because I'm also an older actress trying to be the sparkling diamond, which is like, there's so much lead up to all of that. And so for someone who doesn't see themselves as that, there was a lot of like, there's a lot of talk of intrinsic worth and value. And it's always easier for me to work when I have someone that I can put it on. Like I'm doing this for you or I'm finding those people, finding those moments where it's just me in the spotlight, getting me to reframe the way that I think so that it's not about necessarily 
Satine's ego in that moment, but Satine knows in that moment, she must be everything that all of these men want, because if not, the door shut and her family has no place to live. Like those kinds of things, like where I try to work really intricately. So the thing that the actor brain would do to me, which would be my demise, you're not good enough or big enough to be in the spotlight by yourself. Karen was always overridden by Satine has to do this because it's the only way that they survive. So that's like my therapist. So like <laughs> training my this and training my this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those are the two like main people, truthfully. And then you have hair and makeup and your dresser and the amount of times you change in that show. And I, I can't imagine what those costumes weighed. Yeah. And the swing. I, I mean, yeah. No, but like you're talking about the weight of the costume, the weight of the swing, the weight of the hats and the hair and the and the weight of the sexuality, having to carry that sex weight, you know, like that's what you're talking about. Having to I be mean, everything for like you have to be someone's dream. I mean, that's like, it, it actually makes me think a lot about, you know, in Rent, how they talk about Maureen and like, no, there's like Maureen this and she's this and she's good. You know that there are two people fighting over her before you ever even meet her. And then like, you know, that center door opens and she rides in on a motorcycle. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then she's yeah. dead center. No one even knows who she is. And she has to prove mm -hmm. in that performance piece why two people are fighting over her and why she deserves the spotlight. When you've met all of these incredible characters, it always made me think of like, yo, could y'all have stacked the deck any harder against me? <laughs> it's like 20 minutes of talking about the, you know, the sparkling diamond. And then I have to fly in on a swing? <laughs> Guys, come on. I'm just human. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. And then I know, so that just make me, make me, you know, make me laugh, make me cry, make me horny. To live yeah, do everything. Your, right. Oh, oof. Yeah. A lot to live up in your head. And then the anticipation, you know, the movie was such a phenomenon. And to, I'm definitely not comparing in any way because to me, your satin was, you know, I head over heels. I mean, everything was so precise. And you go from Satine is just sorry for our listeners. I'm I'm taking my finger and it it's like <laughs> that's going everywhere. I mean, she goes from A to Z to back to to K. I mean, and you're dying. Your comedy mm -hmm. is so precise, instinctual, and hysterically funny. I gotta give you that for this role as well. I and mean, you were hysterically funny too. I have to agree that as much as it's beautiful and right that you give props to, you know, the, the, the company that creates a satine and a show, you earned that, sis, you earned it, you earned it. So thank you. Congratulations. But I mean, I, if I'm not to like take myself out of it, but it's like, I didn't learn it like on my own. Like I watched other people. I'm having a, a weird moment here, like talking about this, knowing that I'm talking about it with you, Daphne, because you're one of those people that I had real representation with. That's yeah. something that we talk about all the time. Mm -hmm. I was in school, not knowing whether or not I was going to be able to be a musical theater actor. And then Rent came out and I heard out tonight and my friend was like, do you like it? And I was like, my mind was blown. I was like, what the fuck is this? I can't understand. Like, she's so raw. And then he was like, do you want to see what she looks like? And I was like, 
Yeah. Oh, wow. And it was back in the day where the CD had like, you know, there were pictures. And so he showed me you on the front of that CD. And when I tell you, I wept, I was like, yo, I can do it. I can yes. be like, yeah. that's like, I had, mm -hmm. I, have, I have to be in that thing. I have to get to New York. There are, pl there's a place for me. So like, you know, without that, you know, 16 doesn't happen. I lose my cool. I lose my nerve. I drop out of school. I decide to go do something else. When they talk about being on, you know, being on someone else's shoulders, like I'm yes. standing on your shoulders. That's, yeah. isn't that crazy? Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it is amazing too. Yeah. And, and I stood on the shoulders of others, you know, and it's interesting. I, um, wondered what it was like for you because I found that <clears throat> am I entitled to this this feeling since you know you still have to prove yourself for every single thing you know and it's like there feels like a juncture where it's like yeah 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 but like just keep it 100 that like you got a place like keep your place <laughs> don't get a little too you know you know, ahead of your skis there with your ambitions. And so I love, I love how you channel those ambitions very, very clearly. You it's know, in the, the service for the, for the work, right? We learn in theater that like the purest emotion or the purest intent is always the thing that actually gets the thing to sail. And yeah. so because <laughs> the only thing that I was really taught to value and value even sometimes more than myself is the work. I don't have a choice. Like if I'm doing the right thing for the work, everything else starts to like go up. Right. And so I, I, you know, I keep, I keep my blinders on. Yeah. I don't You're look very, at, very good at that. You I don't want to look at how high famous. I got. If I look down, I'll, you know, I'll head trip. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which sign are you? I'm I just Leo. Had to... Yeah, that's right. Of course, you're Leo. <laughs> you're living through this journey of almost three hours every freaking night. You're going on this journey every night, and you hardly leave that stage. What's the come down for you after a show? How how trying is it on your head and your body and your heart? Good question. I, I'll be honest with you. I never really found like the truest sense of balance. I'm laughing. I'm just letting you know that I'm laughing. Well, I mean, because you probably understand. Like, it, you don't, if you get the opportunity to, to do it, there is something about me, like I like to empty out everything I have that night. Like I'm not going to get to do it again. And that's not the best way of, that's not longevity. Like you don't, you know what I mean? And that's why a lot of people, I would get flack because there'd be times where I'd be like, I can't come do the show. And they'd be like, are you sick? And I'd be like, no, but I, when I tell you that I can't put thoughts together, I am so emotionally drained and my body is, doesn't want me to get up to go to the restroom right now, but it's because I empty out everything I have and then sort of scuttle home and try to figure out how to give myself at least this much more in the tank to try and do it again. I don't know that that's the best way of doing it. But yeah. one of the things I thought early on with Satine is that Satine is an animal trapped in a bag. She knows her time is out. She's been a fighter her entire life. She is somebody who uses every tool 
and will flip the tool upside down and use the other end of it if she needs to. And so I was like, if I don't attack this the way that she would attack this, then I'm doing it a disservice. So use every single thing you have and empty yourself out at the end of the night. It didn't always work out. My incredible standby, Ashley Loren, had to, to pick up a lot of slack because of the way that I wanted to be Satine. And she was great. So that's wonderful for her. And I love that she got so many <laughs> opportunities. But it was like, that was the only way I could do Satine. I can't half-ass Satine. There's Which no way to me can... that there was no, that, that you had no other choice, that that was, it was all or nothing. Yeah, because you can tell, you were there. Like yeah. and as close as the audience is, if they don't see someone who's on the brink, they get comfortable. And one of the things about our show is that not only do we, we jump into your lap and then grab you by the collar and pull you as close as we can in. We don't <laughs> let you go until we decide that it's time. And so if the audience feels like they're like, oh, okay, I got this. That's exactly right. Yeah. right. We, lose, we lose them, right? So right. I need you to think that I'm going to lose my shit. That I'm at the end. We saw it. We were right there with you. I mean, it was it was literally, I don't know how I got so lucky, but I was right in that first row, right on the aisle. And for me, I was so in it that I remember like taking my hands almost to like help you, like, you know, <laughs> sit down. You know, I, it was so, you were so in the moment. You were so in there. It's a magnificent performance. And I understand, well, I don't understand, but I hear you when you're saying about the accolades and the Tony nomination. But I, for me, I just want to let you know, I, I think you were just magnificent. And for me, I very well deserving of all the accolades that you got and are going to continue to get. We do focus in on Off-Broadway and Daphne has a lot of Off-Broadway as well, but there's a show that mm. I don't think gets enough attention that you did. Talk about it. Yeah, by the way, meet Vera Stark. Oh my uh, God. <laughs> just an incredible <sighs> performance and show and the writing and the, can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I love, that was the first play that I got to do in New York. And uh, I was like, oh, I've, I'm now I'm an actor. Cause up until then I was only, you know, they were hiring yeah, me you because are. I could sing. And I was like, this is the coolest thing. I, I, I felt like I studied harder for that show than I think I've studied for anything in college. There was so much that I didn't understand about race, so much that I didn't understand about the patriarchy and how it operated in Hollywood. It changed me in a lot of ways because, you know, I call like what you look like the vessel, like these, these things that they would put you in, these gowns, these hyper-sexualized things that these women had to wear they became something that I started to, it repelled me because one of the great scenes in that is when the three women are Lottie and Vera are at home and anime is the part that I played. Anime is like getting ready to go out. And it's the first time you see anime and she's like putting on all this stuff and she's trying to, she tries to borrow something so that she can sort of like look more voluptuous and like, you know, fancy than she normally would so that she can gain the attention of someone who might promote her career. And there's something so real about those women in that moment, watching her do this thing, watching her like spin herself into a tizzy, knowing that if she walked out there in a pair of slacks and a blouse, she would still be fantastic. 
And that entire show has this thing about, about how you are perceived. That whole second act is these two academics trying to pull apart this, you know, starlet's life and saying, no, this is what she was. No, based on what I know and what I've seen of her, this is what she was trying to do. And the fight that women have had in the industry just to exist, to exist and to have an, an authentic thought without being discredited or without being pushed to the side or labeled as something is just so, it's an underlying thing there with race woven throughout it. But it was something that was so, it was an eye-opening moment for me. Um, and then of course I was like, pinch me, I'm getting to speak Lynn Nottage's words. And, you know, I'm working with some of these incredible actors and yeah, it's one of my favorite things. I still, I, I have issues about me playing Afua in the second act. I have issues with her, like, you know, she had like braids and, and there are times where I think about that and I'm like, ah, that was maybe not the right choice for the hair. That makes me feel a little uncomfortable knowing sort of what the world is and, and how representation is incredibly important. I know that the Afua character had to be anime and anime had to be a Latin actress. So I, I give myself a little bit of a break, but I know that the wig probably should not have looked the way that it did. Mm. And that's something that I, I can't change, but I can own up to it now. <laughs> well, you can talk about it now and, yeah. and look back at it. But at that time, when you put the wig on, how did you feel then? I mean, was there something inside of you at that moment that was like, uh, 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 or? Oh, I wish that I would have been able to, I wish I would have had that. But I've always kind of felt like a little bit of a revolutionary in my own way. So the moment that I was like in these like baggy sort of like militaristic outfit and, and, um, and there was this, this presence about me when I put everything on, I was like, oh, right, this is it. This is who Afua is. And this is my beat poet came out of me. You know, that's a great sort of depiction of outside in. I needed the costume to sort of tap into that thing that was living dormant inside of me. Well, it was a great show, a magnificent performance. And nice. I love Lynn Nottage and you're right. Oh. I would see you and everything. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to hand this over to Daphne and you. I mean, I, I'd love for you and Daf to have the In the Heights conversation. You started off Broadway in the Heights and then you took it to Broadway and my girl just, well, not just, just finished making the movie. And that's an experience I would love for the two of you and our, our audience to hear you talk about. Do you want to talk about the, what that was like, the off-Broadway experience first? And then Daph, it's all yours, my girl. <laughs> I'm so into what we were just talking about. <laughs> <laughs> we have was, to talk about in the heights. Oh my oh, god! I mean, you go first. I mean, I guess the short of it is that it was something that we it was sort of <clears throat> underground, and it's something that we loved and we thought was really special, and we didn't expect anyone to come down to Thirty Seven Arts to see it. We just knew that it was something that was beautiful to us, and it was an opportunity for us to celebrate our culture and the people that we knew that existed in our lives. And that was all that really mattered. And then it's sort of, because it's a piece that talks about the humanity of, of community, it became something else. And people started identifying with it from all walks of life and it drew people in. And then to know that it's 
to know that we created something. And this is like another testament to like when you're actually just doing the thing, you're not thinking about where it's going to get you. You're just paying attention to telling the right story. Things happen. If you would have told me back then that it would be a a movie musical (laughs) that everyone in the world will get to have a piece of. I would say that you're a liar and get out of my face, but it is such a gift that people are going to be able to be a part of the family. I I want to mention too, we have an audience, a nice size audience. And I just want to remind our audience that you can ask a question. So there's a question and answer tab there. And, you know, depending on your question, you can either ask it live or Daphne and I are happy to ask it for you to our magnificent guest. But so have them come in. Go ahead, Daphne. No, I, I'm just, um, I'm still stuck on, oh, wow, I remember 37 Arts. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And how, you know, and I'm thinking back on what you were talking about starting your organization, that like it really just starts with a desire to to say something. I mean, I often say this to, I used to say it to myself when I practiced more self-care, like you were talking about, you know, how 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 we throw ourselves into characters and forget ourselves in the name of a character and the research and the work, like the work becomes paramount and it's wonderfully fulfilling, but it's incredibly draining and it can be at the expense of, you know, our sort of like well-being. But, you know, on the other hand, like if you need to say it bad enough, I used to say, if I need to say it bad enough, one person, one person will need to hear it. And I remember going out on stage with Rent when it, the workshop before the workshop that became the thing. And you're talking about, you know, 37 Arts, like the workshop before the workshop that became the thing. And it's like, I don't give up. Anybody likes this. I belong here. And this is for me and mine. And then if somebody could tell you in the future that, it became a, a movement, <laughs> right? Um, you couldn't have told me that, but you knew in your heart of hearts because it really, really reflected you. So like, that's, I love that, you know, it's kind of like a, a turnaround, a denouement as it were, that you started, I started rent, you finished rent. I started, you started in the Heights and, you know, I mean, I don't know about finished. It's like, it keeps on going. And it's really not even up to us how other people take it. But it, the, the similarity is it's a show about incredible humanity, incredible kindness, people showing up for each other, people who can look at each other in the face and celebrate their ness, you know, their beauty, their ness, you know. And it's not about, dare I say, a proximity to whiteness that determines, you know, stuff. Although we can always argue that. <laughs> Anyway, I I have something, you know, I I was reading a lot about you the past week. I kind of went into that YouTube hole that you can do and reading and your interviews. And I'm just going to quote you on something. And I would love for the two of you to talk about this. 4% of the people who have actors equity cards are Latinas. And that's crazy when you think of how many of us are in the entertainment business. That statistic alone should tell you that we have a long, long way to go. Mm. That's in essence why affect is so important because you're talking to two people who worked really hard and and somehow got our foot in the door, but there are countless 
Hmm. countless people who were never given the opportunity based on the way that the system is run. And so that's why inequity in our industry is so important to me because look, this is the other thing, like, you know, this award system thing where they're like, oh, you're the best of this. I don't believe in that because you know what? You didn't let everybody play. Everybody's yeah. not here. Talk about it. Success is not the criteria. Talent, rather. <laughs> Ability is not the criteria at all. Yeah. Yeah. We need to we need to make it so that it's not just Daphne and myself talking about our careers. We need to make it so that everyone gets a shot. Everyone. That those doors are open. And the only way we do that is we understand what the structure is and we figure out how we dismantle the structure and we, we put things in place that support equity. Yeah. But basically yeah. you need to break it down to build it back up. I mean, you got to, you, you got to, you got to break down the system in order to, to build something new. Yeah. I mean, I, I say break down, but I recognize that that's like triggering for a lot of people who are in power. So dismantling, because okay. when you dismantle something, you take it apart and okay. you're like, I'm going to put this back together later on right. as opposed to breaking it down. Yeah. Well, we're also just like, I mean, at this point, I don't see anything really being dismantled, but it's being called into question. It's like, does this really work? I mean, you know, let's talk about this. And I get it. You're a little freaked out that like I'm in the room now, but you know, it's okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know how else to say that if room isn't made, space will be taken up, you know? And it's because this industry is like, you said it earlier. And I remember when I said it many years ago, I was told to like, never repeat it. But like, this is the stuff that we do for no money. We do this for free because it's a calling. And other people enterprise very well on account of our mindset like that. So when we are aware of that, things will shift and as they should. So Wow. Yeah, yeah. Just, I love you so much. I, I'm enjoying this thoroughly. Me too. I have a question from an audience member. You were born in New York City and raised in Florida and you went to school at CCM. How did you end up making a home in Madison, Wisconsin? Yeah, so I was bi-coastal. I was living in LA and then I was also traveling back to New York for work every once in a while. And I realized I had to get out of LA. I couldn't do the art that I wanted there, I was suffering just as a human being in that environment. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I knew New York and I didn't, New York didn't have what I wanted. And so I had just started a relationship with someone that I had met many years before. And we had a friendship and we, you know, as I was going from LA to New York, I would stop in Madison, Wisconsin. And I would like dip in really quick and say hi to him. And then like, you know, we'd go to the farmer's market or we'd go see a play here in Madison. And then I would go back to New York. And then um, when I really got fed up with New York, there was a show I was supposed to do and I decided I wanted to like help negotiate my contract. So I got to see all the back and forths, like all the emails. And I was like, yeah, I'm not doing this. I'm not making art for any of these people because these people, their integrity does not match my own. I'm not going back to New York to be in that rat race. I'll go to Madison. I love Madison. It also afforded me like a time to sort of refill. Like, you know, I'd been running on empty for a while. And so I did other things. But you got your whole family there. That's yeah. amazing. How did that happen? Well, 
Madison, you know, Madison, the ancestral land of the Ho-Chunk, I should say, yeah. is a good place. You know, there are, there's a lot of art. There are a lot of intelligent people here. It's really heavily community-based. And so the more I spoke about it and the, they came to visit and, you know, then they were like, yeah, this is great. The schools here are wonderful. Uh, I just got them. I got them to come. So that's great. And, you know, my husband's side of the family has a, a long history here in Fitchburg specifically, but so, you know, it was like, come join the rest of the clan. Let, you know, we're going to be a lot stronger if we're together. Another question from our audience member. How do you keep your artistic flow going during the pandemic? Uh, Well, I've uh, recently moved my desk from seated position to a standing position. (laughs) Look, we're in a, yeah, it's the small things at this point. Also, I have, um, I've really been working on, I teach a lot. So a lot of the material that uh, my students bring to class, I end up having to look at. And so my teaching style is more like I'm standing next to them. So I like, I have to sort of embody a lot of the characters that they're going to embody or a lot of the, the mindsets. And so that I'm kind of working as they're working so that I can help them get to the desired outcome. So yeah, teaching has actually been really great. Wow, um, that sounds awesome. It's fun. It's also tiring because there's a lot of plays I have to read and a lot of <laughs> it's a lot of a lot of people, a lot of hats to wear. To be a teacher is a, a selfless uh, act. What What do you love so much about teaching? I love teaching more than I actually love being on stage. There is something so pure about figuring out a way to communicate something to someone and then watching them process it and their eyes lighting up and then immediately something about the way that they interpret the material changes. You know, it's like they're a piece of clay and and I've like put my fingerprint on them and then they just like start to blossom. And then the way that they see the world starts to change and then they start making great art. And I'm like, that's, you know, talk about legacy. That's the best thing that I could ever offer the industry is by passing anything along that will level these kids up. Nice. 100%. I'm going to do some kind of rapid fire questions because I we have a wonderful audience and they have so many questions now. Are you okay with that, Karen? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, great. Fast. Wait, 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 okay. Fast. How can we volunteer with your organization? Theater loving lawyer here, and I'm ready to lend my background education skills however I can. Yes, absolutely. Affect. Um, Thank you, Ariana. Yeah, you can go to the website, and we're actually doing right now a volunteer sort of like fundraising thing. We just want to like, if, if you go to the website, you can do it on Instagram too. You can immediately put your name in, you go into a database and then we're going to just start going through and talking to people and seeing what people want to, uh, how they want to help. Great. So we're going to put the information up on our website, but just slowly give the website name. Yes, it's affectchange.org. Okay, great. How did it feel to be such a part of a wonderful show with such a talented cast. I'm assuming our audience members talking about Moulin Rouge, but let's go there. That yeah, I mean, to a lot of... I, mean, yes, I feel like everyone that I've been in has been like, I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah. are you sure that I belong here? Uh, I'm always so humbled because I <laughs> know I'm going to... Do you feel that sometimes? Do you, oh. do you feel like, look around and be like, Oliva with an O, like, did you mean me? Like, yes. Yeah, do you see... feel that too sometimes? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I'm sorry, Karen, go ahead. No, I mean, I just think when you see people doing the thing that they were born to do and they're standing right next to you, you're like, yo, you know, we don't get that view of ourselves. We can only watch other people sort of shine, radiate 
like incredible talent. And so there's times where I'm like, do I do that? If not, I need to learn how to do that because that's incredible. <laughs> I'm always really humbled. Um, specifically like the Moulin Rouge performers are all stars. Every single last one of those ensemble members are stars. The things that they manage to do nightly are things that people don't train their entire lives and accomplish. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just humbled. Yeah. And they're, they're so engaging with us as the audience and they make us feel such a part of the production. They're the glue that it, they were magnificent. I can't wait to come back and see it again. Oh, please hurry. We're, murder ballad. Uh, yeah, murder ballad. What is your experience like doing murder ballad? It was such an emotionally taxing role. Uh, murder ballad was, uh, that was the first time I've ever done like, what is it called when it's like inclusive? There's an actual word for that. It's not site specific, although it was site specific. I mean, we were in a bar, but when the audience is all around you, why am I blanking on what that was? I know I'm blanking on it too. Um, <laughs> hang on, I'm gonna get it in one second. Somebody figure out the word that oh I'm thinking. <laughs> interactive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yes. Yeah. That. We'll take that one. Interactive. That was hard because there was no hiding. Everything had to be real. There was no wing for me to hide in. <laughs> And that was just a long period of being completely invested in something that was awful and painful and scary at times. I don't know that I'll ever do that kind of work again because immersive, of- Immersive, immersive. Immersive, duh, come on, Karen. Yeah, immersive. Thank you, George. Thank you. That was tough. That was, that was Yeah, I bet. So being like close to close with those people, with audience, I mean, it, it's terrifying, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. There were like times where I would be doing a scene, like singing a full song at this tiny cafe table. And there's a patron sitting across from me, <laughs> a tiny cafe table. And I would have to pretend like they weren't there. And I was like, I'm spitting in your face. I literally see my spit hitting your face. And you're like this. This is paid good money for that spit, sis. <laughs> they did. <laughs> so Karen and Daphne, it seems like we're not gonna come out of this for a while. We have such, there's so much going on in the country right now. It's just kind of blown up. What is your hope for our theater community? I mean, I, I know all this incredible work that you're doing, but what is your hope? And do you see a light somewhere there when we come out of this for what theater is gonna look like? Yeah, this is a renaissance. One of the things that's great about the pandemic is that it's giving us even more time to dig deep and think about stuff, even though our industry is suffering greatly and hopefully there'll be like some way of bailing us out. It's causing the people who actually hold the purse strings to really start to think about the structure because now they're going to be hurting as well. And I think that across the board, the way that we value art, the way that we value the people who make the art is going to start changing the stories that we're going to tell are going to change. We can't come out of something this disastrous and tell the same stories. Mm -hmm. Not legitimately, please. We deserve something else. And also, you know, our artists, we're the people who like experience life and then we figure out a way to give it back to the person who can't really understand it. So we have to start making art that explains to the world what just happened. You know, there are not people who are able to access those emotions and that's gonna be our job. To yeah. me, I'm so excited to see what comes out of all of you incredible artists about what's going on now in the country. You know, a year or two from now, 
what you've all created and put into this pot to to see what kind of theater and the words and the the moving pieces that are coming up that's what i'm so excited about because this time of terror and fear and pandemic and racial injustice and all of this bullshit something beautiful is going to come out of this some way somehow Daph, you agree there, don't you? We talk about that all the time. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about the idea of process. You know, process is something I never, ever liked. I want results, you know, and this is a process. We have to process it. You know what I mean? This is like we have to, if there is no processing, there is no learning from what we've done, you know, and you talk about, we talk about like all these terrible things you know, more being revealed, like social injustice, like this is as just as it's ever been. You know, the injustice is having it in your face and really knowing about it and the revealing of the injustice. So how are we going to recover from this and be able to tell that story without trying to, you know, put lipstick on it? Right. So, I love that. yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this is really exciting. Both Daphne and I, I thank you. Thank you, Daphne, first of all, for reaching out to Karen. I'm, thank you, Karen, for picking up the phone. I'm so honored to have you here. You're a real staple in our community, off Broadway, on Broadway. I can't wait to, to get on board with, with your project and help in any way I can. And I think our listeners will know where to go now. Thank you so much for this hour, life-changing for me. So I'm very grateful. So thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. Daphne, I love you with all my heart, Karen. I don't know how else to say it. Te adoro. Te adoro con todo. I love you so much. Um, Thank you, our audience members. Thank you for joining Karen and Daphne and myself. It has been an honor to have all you participants. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for helping make Live at the Lord tell something about conversation to hope that we can make some change and people are listening. So that's, that's what we want here. Conversations that will lead to change. So I thank you all so much for joining us and um, thank you again. Thank you. Peace. Peace out. And that's our show. Next week, my friend and co-host Joy D. Michelle will interview Betty Shamia, an Arab American playwright with several off-Broadway premieres, including Roar, the first play about the Arab-American experience to be produced off-Broadway. That interview will air on November 20th. Then the incredible Daphne Rubin Vega and I will interview Drama Desk Award winner Andrea Burns. We will discuss her role as the saucy hairdresser Daniela in Lin-Manuel Miranda's Tony Award-winning musical In the Heights. Since Daphne recreated the role of Daniela in the upcoming film, I bet these two powerhouse women have a lot to talk about. That will air on November 27th. For more information on these guests and on how to attend one of our future recordings next year from the comfort of your own home, please visit our website, livewiththelortel.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer, yours truly, associate producer, Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak, Gogo Public Relations, and our social media is managed by Mia Radia. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz, Alana Canty Samuel, and Maura Levines. Live at the Lortel is recorded online by Brian Falk, Abacus Entertainment. While theaters are closed, we hope you will consider donating to the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund at actorsfund.org or your favorite theater company. 
Thank you so much for listening.